Our scripture reading this morning, taken from Psalm 147, verses 1 through 11. So I invite you now to please take God's word, and if you would like to follow along as I read, again, Psalm 147, starting at verse number 1. Praise the Lord, how good it is to sing praises to our God, how pleasant and fitting to praise him. The Lord builds up Jerusalem, he gathers the exiles of Israel, he heals the brokenhearted, and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our God and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The Lord sustains the humble but casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with grateful praise. Make music to our God on the harp. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, I need a show of hands on something. How many of you know who this guy is? Anybody, raise your hand if you know who that is. I got th- three. I only got three. Okay. I think maybe at four. Okay, I can help you. Let's go one more picture. Now who knows who this guy is? Please, please, more than four. It better be more than four. Okay. So that's like ten. Okay. So oh, you need to know who this guy is. This guy is Shoei Otani. Okay. And... Um, You need to understand how blessed you are that this guy is around right now. I'm I'm telling you, we're all privileged with the ability to watch this guy. So um, I'm going to make a strong argument here, and you can disagree with me, but I'm going to say he is the most impressive, talented, interesting baseball player in history. History, okay? And he's still young. He's only, what, like 25 years old, I think. Um, this year so far, this guy is leading the, the major leagues in home runs. He's up there in average and RBIs and slugging and all the things you want to look to some of these next pictures here. He's also leading the league in strikeouts. He is the best pitcher in baseball and he's the best hitter in baseball at the same time. So now you may remember if you like baseball history, it was like, oh yeah, Babe Ruth was a pitcher and a hitter too. Nope, not like this guy. Not anywhere close to what this guy's doing. So, we could say he's doing better at both of them. Well, not maybe at Babe Ruth over the long run and hitting, right? But he might get there. Some people say he can get there if he stays healthy. He's that good. He's that good. And he's a way better pitcher than Babe Ruth ever was. Nobody has been able to do what this guy is doing right now. It's, I mean, I could talk about him all afternoon. It's incredible. This guy really is something. He was the starting pitcher for the All-Star game meaning best pitcher, he's the starter, and he was the best hitter on the team at the same time. If he was just a free agent for pitching, he would be the highest paid pitcher in baseball. If he was just a free agent for hitting, he would be probably the highest paid hitter in baseball. He's going to be both, so imagine how much his next contract's going to be. They say 600 million is the starting point. Ten years, 600 million is probably what the starting negotiations will be. Um... 
Anyway, so nobody has ever done what this guy is doing right now. Um, you know, you could spend your whole life learning how to be good at pitching, and that's it. Or you could spend your whole life learning how to be good at hitting, and that's it. This guy's already the best at both. It's, it's incredible. So this is a once-in-a-lifetime kind of talent. And if you're not watching him, you need to watch this guy. He is incredible. Okay. You know, there's some people in life who are really good at something, like at one thing, like a world expert in, you know, whatever you, microbiology or, you know, some, some area of expertise. And that's all that they do, but they're the best in the world at it, okay? And then there are people who are on the other side of that coin. My dad told me when I was in high school, uh, son, you were born with the Garner curse, which is... We are jacks of all trades, but we are experts at nothing. Um, it's, I mean, you could kind of look through my family. It's kind of the, the thing, the story of my life. I'm pretty decent at lots of things, but uh, except for singing, as you all have learned. Um, but I'm not a master of anything. I'm not a master of anything. Um, just I know lots, a, a little bit about lots of stuff, but I'm not a master of anything. So this morning, we're going to get to see God kind of take this Otani thing to a whole nother level, okay? He's going to be the best in the world at multiple things. And obviously, because we're talking about God, it's going to be infinitely way past what a baseball player can do. God is going to show himself to be the world's great judge, the world's greatest warrior, and yes, even the world's greatest singer. So let's pray together as we get to see more about this amazing God. Father, would you guide us as we see your word, your truth that has not changed. Father, would you give us insight, encourage us. God, use me in this time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are continuing in our series on the Minor Prophets. If you are keeping count, this is week number nine um, out of 12. So we're getting there, um, but we're, we've still got yet a ways to go. So um, our, our book for the, this morning is, is m- maybe one, yet again one of those books that could make an argument for being the least known book in the Bible. But I feel confident that by the end of today, you will be a big fan of Zephaniah. And yes, Zephaniah, you probably didn't know it, but that's a book in the Bible. It's one of those, you're like, is that right? I can't, uh, I don't know. It's a book. It is a book in the Bible, and it's what we're talking about this morning. Zephaniah. Zephaniah was written, we think, around 628 B.C. Uh, In history, this is when the Assyrians are are starting to lose their status as the world's greatest empire. Others are kind of picking up, coming after them, and and we feel that feels like things might be changing. Um, if you remember, Israel was defeated in 722 BC, so there's no more uh, messages for Israel. So we're going to be only talking to Judah from now on. And if you see him there in the little bitty writing in between 650 and 600, there's a guy right there named Zephaniah. And so uh, Judah's still around. It's got 40-ish so years left. Israel is gone. Assyria is, is on its way out. Um, and so Judah is still hanging on. They've had, God has miraculously delivered them from some armies way bigger than them that it looked like they were going to be defeated, but it didn't happen because God was still protecting his people. 
Um, but they are sandwiched in between the Cush Empire, the Egyptian Empire, the Assyrians, upcoming Babylonians, and Edomite, all different kinds of people. Are, they're kind of stuck in the middle, and they're in trouble. Um, so so kind of that's where we are in history. As far as Zephaniah, we don't know that much about him. But it's interesting that if you, if you read the introduction, he, he gives a four-generation genealogy, which none of the other prophets do. And... Um, Interestingly, the, the, the genealogy starts with the name Hezekiah. And if you know, um, we've talked about Hezekiah before. He was one of the, the good kings of Judah. And so many think, the most logical explanation is he is the great-grandson of King Hezekiah. You know, somewhere down the line, we don't know whose daughter and born where. But he was a great-grandson of Hezekiah. And so many call him the royal prophet. Because he would have still had some sort of, you know, royal bloodline. He would have had a little bit of influence in the culture as, as somebody with, you know, kind of that royal line in, in him. So he would have been a person of, of some influence. And, and in fact, many people think that Zephaniah's message and his presence was the thing that helped King Josiah uh, and, and, and led to the reforms of, of Josiah uh, when the whole kingdom changed during his uh, reign as king. We're not 100% sure on that, but it, it seems as though his message is kind of before there's a change, and then the kingdom will, will kind of turn for the good. If you were here the last two weeks, uh, Mike took you through Haggai and Zechariah, and, and those are books that were mentioned as post-exile, meaning Judah fell, is, uh, Jerusalem fell, they went to Babylon in exile, and so right after that exile. And so we're going back in history just a little bit. Uh, because those were kind of, here's about the future, here's, what, here's where we're headed in redemption. Um, we're going back to still when Judah exists as a nation, and, and they're kind of on their last legs in terms of history. Zephaniah is a short book. It's only three chapters, and, and it's a real simple book. It's only got two parts. And if you've been paying attention these last nine weeks, you kind of already know the parts that are coming, right? The first one is judgment. And interestingly, there's no warning, there's no call to repentance, it's just judgment. It says, here it is, this is what's about to come for you. It's a promise of destruction. And so we're going to start just by kind of looking at at chapter 1. If you've got your Bibles, you can look to Zephaniah 1. Again, it's kind of hard to find, I don't know what page it's on uh, in your Bibles, but kind of towards the end of the Old Testament. I, I want you, as we read this, I want you get, to get in your head the picture of God as a warrior, as a conquering warrior. So whatever that looks like in your mind, kind of imagine that as we read this. this. That's the image that's meant to be, uh, that we're supposed to be picking up here. This great warrior and great judge. He's the greatest in the world at both of those things. So we're going to read verses 2 through 6. He says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. You know, talk about a depressing introduction to a book, right? I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble of the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. And the name of the idolatrous priests 
along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and, and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Okay, so we're going to just skip down to verse 14. You're getting the picture here, right? The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The day of the the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The man, or, sorry, the mighty man cry, cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet bat, blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind. Because they have sinned against the Lord, their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end. He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Wow. Right? That's a lot. Um, This is why people avoid the minor prophets, right? If people go, why don't you read Zephaniah more? Well, it's this, right? This is hard to read. Um, But we need to get a good grasp of of the greatness and the magnitude of God. It's something that our culture is terrible at, which is, you know, we make God this big when he's way bigger than what we can, you know, try to box him in as. There's none like him. No one who can stop him. No one who can thwart his plans. And we need to understand that the Lord is just and that he has every right as the king to judge and to punish those who have been disobedient and rebellious. And, and that's everyone, okay? So if he has the right to judge everyone who's been rebellious, everyone who's been disobedient, that's everyone on the planet. That's every person. You may have noticed when we read verses 2 through 6, it sounded a little bit like the creation story in Genesis. But instead of creating things, he's taking away things. He's removing things. He's destroying things. It's the opposite of creation. That's what's happening in verses 2 through 6. Instead of the process of creation, it's the process of destruction. It's meant to have that imagery that there's this finality to what God is going to do in making things right. Many have said that Zephaniah is simply the book of the day of the Lord. Like when you say Zephaniah, just think the day of the Lord because it's, it's, that phrase is used in this book than, more than any other, um, just 18 times in this short three chapters. The image of the day of the Lord is as of God, of, as his divine warrior. So again, just have that image in your mind. This divine warrior who's coming to take care of things that are overdue, right? This reckoning is, is happening here. And, and I said that this book is in, in two parts. We, we've, we've gotten the first one, and it's terrible and depressing and great. The judgment of the divine warrior, and he's going to bring a swift judgment and a swift justice to the, to the whole earth. Everything, all of creation will deal with his judgment. And, and then as we move into this second point, we're going to see kind of a different side of this divine warrior. And so you can start making your way to chapter 3. We'll skip over chapter 2. It's basically just more of the same, and, and we would say more indictments on the nations that are surrounding Judah to let them know 
you're included in this, and it's, it's all coming. But then chapter 3 takes a really interesting turn. Um, verses 1 through 8 are, are a description of how God is going to show himself as this great judge. Um, and, and verse 8 basically says that he's going to assemble all the kingdoms together, and everything in the world is going to be consumed in this one judgment. He's going to gather everything together in verse 8 and judge it. And in that judgment, it could all be consumed. And, and so he's including in all of that this coming judgment on uh, Jerusalem. We talked a few weeks ago um, that, that Jerusalem, the destruction had been prophesied, and, and we see it here again. God is going to destroy Jerusalem for her disobedience and for her refusal to be corrected. He says, I've given you prophet after prophet. I've warned you time and time again. Repent, turn. We can change this thing. And they will not repent. They will not be corrected. And so we're looking at about 628 B.C. here. Remember, it goes backwards some 40 years or so later. 586 will be the destruction of Jerusalem. 586. So it's coming. The time is coming, and its fate has been sealed, you could say. But in the midst of all of this, something incredible happens. All the nations are, are gathered for this judgment, right? That's the picture. You can just kind of see everything and all of the world coming together as God is going to bring judgment. And then, then God, this divine warrior, is going to do something different. He's going to bring a protection around his own people in the midst of this judgment. There's, there's a divine protection of this warrior that's coming. And it says that he enables their tongues to worship together. Uh, if you look at verses 9 through 13, it becomes sort of like a reversal of the Tower of Babel. If you remember that story, he says, verse 9, at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of the dispersed ones, shall bring the offering. He will not be put to shame because of the deeds which you have rebelled against me. So he, everyone's still guilty, but he's bringing a protection in a different way as he's gathering his people together. The Tower of Babel is in people in their pride tried to be like God and he dispersed them, right? He dispersed them, he scattered them into nations and gave them different tongues. And here he's bringing people together, giving them one tongue to worship as he protects his people, as he gathers them all together. There's, there's sort of this different image of the Tower of Babel, this collection of what God is doing in the day of the Lord. They're going to use their, their tongues, you can say, to, to worship him all in, it says in one, in one accord, one, one voice. And then God is still not done. Zephaniah is going to give us the most incredible description of this warrior God who can both carry out justice but also powerfully love and protect his people. So look at verse, we're going to start reading in verse 14. Some of the most amazing uh, words in all of Scripture. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. 
The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. The Lord has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. And I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, and at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So let me just go back a little bit and say this. There, there are many who need to hear about the holiness justice and judgment of God. And I would say that includes all of us. We need to know that the Lord is a mighty warrior who will deal with sin. We need to hear verses like 112, where he says, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. We need to know that the Lord warns those who are complacent. We say, God God doesn't really care about my life. He doesn't care what I do. You know, one way or the other, it's no big deal. I'm just going to live my life. I'm going to do me. Nope, that's not what 112 says, right? There are those of us, all of us in this room, who need to hear this message. God is a warrior who will punish sin. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. And, and, and I would just say, I do too. And I think it's the starting point where we need to understand who God is. That's the starting point. God is holy, and we are not. God is just, we are sinners. God is righteous, we are unrighteous. And judgment is in store for the unrepentant sinner. We need to hear that sin matters to God, and he's going to do something about it. And if you just ignore God... This is what's going to happen. This is what it looks like. But then there's this other side, too, that we need to hear. And, and since we are in week nine of the Minor Prophets, you probably already knew this was coming, right? You, you, you've gotten the pattern of these prophets so far. Okay, he's given us this bad news, and then there's going to be this sliver of good news that's coming. We know, that, we know how this Minor Prophet thing works. You've preached enough of these, right? Restoration. There's always this promise. The the loving God who wants to do something about the sin of his people, that he's going to be the one that makes a way when all is lost and there's no hope, he's going to be the one that makes a way for them. Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with his gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So I I know that we talk about the grace and mercy of Christ around here a lot. I know that we do that. And, And we spend a ton of time talking about the forgiveness found 
in the gospel and found in Christ. Which, by the way, I'm not, I don't think is a bad thing. I think it's what we're supposed to be doing as a church. I think the point of worship is to talk about what it is that Jesus has done for us and to praise him for that and to never forget. I think that's what we're supposed to be doing around here. So don't get tired of it because we're not going to stop. But let's not get complacent in hearing it. Let's not get complacent in hearing about the saving work of Jesus. I, I know that we can all get to this place where we're kind of unaffected by the truth of it. It's like, yeah, I've heard this before. Jesus loves me. I got it. Right? We can get to that place. But, but let's not get there where we're just numb to, the, to this message because it's incredible. You know, there, there's so many messages that I wish I could, you know, help the world hear about Jesus. But this one might be at the top of that list, right? Zephaniah 3.17, out of nowhere, in this book that you probably hadn't even heard of before, is this incredible message. Unexpected. Nobody thought it was coming. Here it is. Jesus, this mighty warrior. See that image again. The same mighty warrior. He's at work in both places. More powerful than any other warrior. No one can stop him. And no one can stop him in his ability to save either. Nothing can stop him from saving. That's what this says. Nothing. There is no sin that can get in the way of his power to save. None. And he's not done there in his description of this mighty warrior Jesus. He says that he is for you. He's on your side. We love that language. This mighty warrior, no one can match his power and ability, his ability to save. Oh, and guess what? He's for you. He is for you. And it says that he rejoices over you with gladness. Do you see Jesus that way? That he rejoices over you. We, we read that a, uh, just a few minutes ago in, in Psalm 147. This idea of God rejoicing over his people is, is one that we don't really, I, I, it's kind of hard to talk about. We don't talk about it probably enough. Jesus rejoices over you. Not over your good works, not over your lovability because you're the, just the best. He just thinks you're so great. No, he just loves you. And, because, and, 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 and he, so he loves you and then he quiets you and he comforts you with that love. Like, like a mom that cares for her upset child. That's the kind of care that we're seeing here out of Jesus. Remember I, I said a, a few minutes ago, he's the greatest singer in the world. Here it is. He will exult over you with loud singing. There's other translations that use different words. Where he will rejoice over you with singing. Or he will delight in you with singing. But you get the, the message, right? You get the idea. He loves you so much. He's so crazy about you that it makes him sing. He's singing in delight over who you are. His. (laughs) That's who you are. His. 
Jesus is so crazy about you that he will sing over you with joy. He's not screaming at you like an angry parent. He's not throwing rocks at you. He's singing over you with delight. I I don't know what other image we can have of this Jesus better than that. And, And we need to make it our mission that we help the world hear this message and preach it to ourselves at the same time. You see, I think most of us spend our lives dealing with guilt, trying to appease God, maybe. He's this faraway person. Remember, it just said he's in our midst singing over us with joy. But we see him as this far-off angry thing. We're trying to avoid him at all costs. We don't think he likes us very much. He sure doesn't approve of who we are. Right? And some of us say, well, forget it, then I'm just going to go live my own life. I'm just going to numb my life with substances or other things to entertain myself just to keep me busy enough in escapism just to stay away from him, if he's even there. So we don't have to do that when we have a God who is rejoicing over us in delight with singing. There's, There's no reason to run from him. There's no reason to be in disobedience and rebellion from that kind of God. It's all because of Jesus, right? A Jesus who cares, who is all-powerful, that can save, who is for you, who wants to save, who delights to save, who is crazy about you so much so that he sings over you with joy. He will care for your every need, never leave you alone. That's the Jesus of Zephaniah 3.17. And so I would just say, you need to memorize it. If you hadn't heard of Zephaniah before, and some of, some of us are in that boat, right? Zephaniah 3.17 needs to put, you need to put that on your mirror, in your bathroom. You need to put it on your dashboard of your car as armor, as encouragement. Every time you're tempted to rebel against Jesus, anytime the, the enemy's voice is telling you that it's time to run away, that Jesus doesn't love you, that Jesus doesn't like you, that because of your sins you're so far, far from God that he'll never take you back, you just need to read Zephaniah 3.17 again. The Lord, your God, is in your midst. The, The voice of the enemy says that he's far away from us. He's a distant God who doesn't care. Why would the enemy want us to think he is in our midst singing over us in delight. The enemy wants us focused on something else, right? Uh, how do we earn something? Are you good enough? Do you, are you good-looking enough? Do you look, does your life look like the ones in social media? Is your house big enough? Is your portfolio big enough? Are you popular enough? Earn something. Be something. Do your own thing. Run away from this God who doesn't care about you. That's the message that that too often is in here. And the only way to drown that out is with the truth of Scripture. So again, Zephaniah 3.17 needs to become a verse that you know and are familiar with and can wield in times when that that enemy voice is, is screaming in your ear. 
The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing because he loves you. He's, He's crazy about you. Let's pray together. God, none of us could ever, could never live up enough. Our grades would never be good enough. We'll never be popular enough or good looking enough or accepted enough. On and on, the voice of doubt tells us to run from you. Tells us to find our worth in accomplishment. Tells us to find our worth in some other relationship. It just leaves us empty time and time again. And all the while, you're delighting over us, rejoicing over us in singing. A mighty warrior who can save. A mighty warrior who wants to shield us from, from the dangers of this world who protect us unto yourself. Because of your great love, not because of our obedience or good enough works, but because you love us. Father, if we, if we lived it, if we truly believed it, everything in our world would look different. We wouldn't care about any other voice. God, so help us. Help us to hear you. Help us to remember. Thank you, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.